Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. We have got a fantastic episode in store for you guys today, because I'm sure many of you will have watched. It's a, it has been marathon weekend everywhere. There's been so many marathons taking place this, uh, over the last couple of weeks, but uh, the big one, of course, was London. And on today's show, we have got the chap who was the first British finisher, seventh overall at the London Marathon, and I'm sure you saw him if you're watching it on TV. Welcome, welcome. to the show, Phil Seesman. Uh, hi guys, nice to be on. Thank you very much for coming on today. We, uh, I think, I, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, put it out there that you're probably our, one of our, uh, you know, biggest superstars in terms of guests we've had on recently, Phil. So, you know, we've, we've elevated you to that level. So I'm not trying to, you know, kind of, you know, set a, a, a barrier for you, or set a height for you, but I think that today's show, we've put you up there as probably one of our, uh, our superstars for our guests. So, uh, you know, you've got to live up to it now. <laughs> uh, I'll give you, I'll do my best and I appreciate that. Have you recovered okay after London? Um, no, not yet, to be honest. I, um, I thought I'd recover great and the legs feel fine, but, um, picked up a bit of food poisoning, picked up a sore throat, picked up a cold, um, which everyone tells me kind of happens post marathon, but I didn't really believe them, but it has happened. So, um, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm back to a bit of jogging, but I'm, I'm not ready to do anything hard. Anywhere near yet? Yeah, I guess on the plus side, you didn't pick up any uh, any stomach bugs or any colds in the week before London. Better the week after than the week before, I suppose. No, exactly, exactly. So um, in terms of timing, it probably is good timing if, if there is any. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we've got a lot of questions, a lot of things we want to talk about today. But I'm going to start by handing over to Ian because I know he's chomping at the bit to speak to you. All right, great. Hi Phil, yeah, thanks for coming on the show, we're uh, all really excited about this, so looking forward to uh, asking questions about the marathon itself, but obviously uh, uh, other aspects of your running and, and leading up to that, and I think that would probably be a, a really good place to start, just in terms of, you know, if you could give us a bit of background to your running and what sort of led you to um, to the London Marathon this year, because it was your first marathon, but obviously you've got a, quite a, a long running history before that. Sure, so, um, so most people ran through school, fairly competitive, kind of dabbled in 800 and above on the track and um, saw myself as kind of a 1500 metre runner, maybe 3k runner, a uh, bit of road, a bit of cross country. Um, took a year out for freshers uh, when I was first came to university 10 years ago, enjoyed myself and did what most freshers do. Um, and then came back and tried to be a triathlete. Um, so I was, I was in Leeds, I was in the right place. Um, but unfortunately, um, cycling through a Yorkshire winter when you're a novice on the bike, 
really wasn't very enjoyable. There was there wasn't a lot of time in the week to fit your rides in, and you could have pick and choose with the weather. And um, I quickly found that the aerobic conditioning really helped the running. And having always been a runner, I was seeing some results and enjoying that more than ever. And I thought this is definitely what I want to want to focus on. And um, basically, since then, must be eight years ago now. It's kind of that's been the focus. Um, and I've slowly, slowly moved my way through the events, um, starting with kind of 1500 on the track at the low end and, um, being maybe like a, a 3k indoor specialist was, was always a favorite of mine during the winter. Um, and kind of just moving through the distances on the road and, um, finally running what I feel like was a good, a good 10k at the end of 2019 in Paris. Um, and thinking that, okay, it's, it's probably with my training volume and the way that my training was going, it's, it's maybe time to start looking at the longer stuff, the marathon. Um, and that, that's, that's what we long term development plan with my coach, um, is what he thought as well. And, um, we have finally got there. So it, it did take a while and I was hoping to do a marathon early in the year at the Olympic marathon trials in Kew Gardens, but maybe due to COVID and, and I hadn't had a half marathon under my belt then and I didn't have a qualifying mark and they didn't allow me into the race, um, which they've got to have standards and, and unfortunately I didn't hit them. Um, so that's why I, I did the indoors this year and um, and then kind of post track season, which ended quite early um, due to a short bout of illness before the 10,000 metre trials. Um, I've had about 17 weeks to kind of, focus on on doing the london marathon um we did a few weeks of, of easy mileage and and some kind of non-specific sessions just kind of jumping in with whoever was training whenever and um kind of said all right london's 15 weeks away we're already 200 and 110 mile weeks down let's let's do let's do london and, and give it a go for once yeah, nice. Obviously, it's worked out well, hasn't it? So it was it was a good decision. So you're obviously uh, monitoring your progression well, and uh, and that obviously worked out well in terms of gauging where you thought you were at. You mentioned in there about um, yeah, your, your volume was uh, given where your volume was and where it was going. You thought that the marathon was appropriate. So is volume something that you've increased as you've started training for the marathon from what you were doing previously? It has increased, um, and there's definitely been, um, uh, I've sustained higher volume for longer. Um, so I think since, since kind of the start of June, since deciding I was going to do London, I kind of got myself up to 110, 115, and, and then got up to 120 and kind of sat there most weeks. Um, had a, a lighter week going into the big half to try and hit that and give a good account of myself there and, um, and then since then, the volume kind of went back up even higher and, and peaked at 133 um, miles in the week. Um, and then had obviously a two week taper um, going going into London. Um, and that's kind of the way that I did it. I, I was running fairly volume last winter and, and even the years before that. I've, I've been up running 100 mile weeks, um, but was probably racing a bit more often and, and you'd see the mileage dropping and um, I wasn't able to sustain it quite as high um, for so long. Yeah, I, I mean, gauging against other uh, elite runners and what, what you hear about training, it's still reasonably high volume that, isn't it? Certainly what you were peaking at, 
And is that something that you've sort of dropped down in intensity to allow your body to, to do that? Or did you feel as though you could maintain intensity and take the volume that high? Uh, definitely in this marathon block, um, we tried to err on the side of caution by taking the intensity down. So I would hit two, maybe a third kind of B level session um, a week. Um, but my sessions would kind of be a good hard session on the track with long repetitions and and then a, a hard long run um, that may be either just a straight 18 miler or it may be kind of 24 miles with different length reps inside it. But of very steady recoveries, um, so never really going slower than kind of 5.30 pace um, within those. Um, outside of that, I was definitely running a lot easier. Um, so I was doing a lot of running, but I was very conscious of making sure it was very easy. It was it was very much just training with my mates, training with my dog, um, just taking it really easy. And um, that, that is probably where I would look to make any improvements on on a future training block um would be okay maybe pick up the pace slightly on on some of my easier runs um, and make those a bit steadier and fit those into the week um but definitely with the this first marathon training block we decided just keep it easy there's no there's no rush to kind of burn the candle at um both ends of suction and, and push it there and, and just wanted to make sure we got good volume and good sessions and um, we weren't too fast how we got there. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's something that we talked about before on, on the podcast in terms of sort of that, making sure you got that strong contrast between what you sort of, you, the intensity of your hard sessions, but then making sure your easy sessions are, are, are particularly easy. Uh, um, so what sort of, uh, intensity, what sort of pace would you be running those easy runs at, just out of interest? Uh, they were pretty much, if I was on, if I'm on a flat canal and conversational pace, it's not going below 650 average. Um, and and it, it, some days it could be 720s on a flat canal. And if I'm out on the trail, then it's definitely not getting below 730 pace average, really. Um, some days it's even slower than that. Um, I wasn't really looking at the pace. Um, I did start to track heart rate slightly on those. Um, and that was more just to track how fitness was doing and see what I was doing at certain paces with my heart rate. And it's never something that I've looked at too closely before. Um, but I wasn't looking at the heart rate in sessions or anything like that. It was, it was just on the easy run pace and then maybe seeing how I was recovering. So you, you predominantly more going on feel in your sessions and, and in your easy runs rather than using any metrics to sort of guide it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And with the sessions, I'm probably quite pace focused. Okay. Um, so if I'm even if I'm feeling rubbish, I'm, I'm striving to hit a certain pace that I'd like. Um, and that there was a few sessions where I do more fart like based off a track, and I wouldn't be looking at pace as much, but. Generally, it's, it's okay. This is the pace I want to run today, and if I can run a little bit better, great. And I'm trying my hardest not to run any slower. Yeah, and that's great. I, I've got quite a few questions that I want to ask, sort of some around sort of the psychology of, uh, of performance, but also in terms of London itself and uh, and the actual event. But I probably should give the other guys a chance to ask questions around training first, because I'm sure they've got some questions, sort of building up what you've already said. So uh, I'll pass over to Mike first. Thanks, Ian. 
Hi Phil, massive congrats. It was a phenomenal experience to watch, as well as, as obviously the achievements you did physically. It was um, engrossing telly, particularly that period where the camera just seemed to follow you alone, running along. It was engrossing to watch. Um, I had two questions really just about the training side. What One was obviously you juggle this balance of work with your uh, training so there's the there's the how do you find that balance of a busy job and your training but equally then the job that you're in probably exposes you to a greater risk of things like covid and how have you managed and balanced those two things with your training over the last 18 months so i've been working part-time um, as a foundation junior doctor um, for the last four years um, and my foundation year two finished in June so up until then it was three days a week um, and then since then um, I've been on a locum bank shifts and, and basically can pick and choose my shifts um, which is really um, fortunate at this this time of year um, so definitely in this training block I was able to kind of focus on specific training weeks and um, pick and choose my sessions or well, pick and choose my work shifts around when I want to hit my sessions and make sure I'm going to have ample recovery around those. Um, I wouldn't be picking up a work shift um, that finished at one o'clock in the morning if I knew I was meeting Emil Caress for a hard track session in the morning, that kind of thing. So um, it did take a bit of organisation with that. Um, and there's definitely, while you're at work, there's definitely been maybe a bit more um, cautious of, of getting too close to patients if I don't need to. Um, staying out of enclosed rooms and, and that kind of thing. Um, and just in terms of with the training, making sure I'm wearing good shoes at work. Lucky in A&E, it's scrubs and trainers, so I can wear my, my Marley shoes and um, relax in those and, and sitting down whenever I can, really. Um, so not trying, to, not trying to be a hero and not trying to do everything while I'm at work. Very much just practicing good, safe medicine um, while I'm there. Um, Sorry, what was the second question? Sorry, I've missed. Uh, that, that, that was the main part of that, was how you managed the training oh. per se and then the risks of the COVID. Yeah. And um, I, did, I did drop my shifts in September. Um, so I dropped those right down. Um, and that, that was purely on COVID exposure risk. Um, it's months since I've had my second vaccination and I just thought I could do all this training and I could catch COVID the week before and for what, for one shift kind of thing, like what, what's that done? So, um, yeah, I dropped, I dropped those in September. Yeah. And I'm going to steal a psychology question off Ian and wrap it up as training. Um, I, I've read in multiple places since, since you run that you did a lot of solo training, a lot of longer runs solo. Did you think that was a big help on the day during that period where you left the paces and ran solo? So a lot of my long ones were solo, but I would often have someone on a bike um, or I would have someone um, helping me with fluids and, and that kind of thing. Or someone would do the first half and then I might have to get the second half done on my own. Um, so it definitely helped me when I was sat behind Jake and I was able to focus on him and, and relax there. Um, but then the, the, the tough bit on on my own um i did drop off my pace my splits dropped off significantly um during that six miles solo um so yeah maybe, maybe a bit more practice next time you got any more Ian? 
Um, well, just on that last one there, in terms of, um, you know, you, you said about being uh, sat behind Jake, but then obviously the last six miles on your own, it's, it's worth saying that quite a bit. That was into the wind as well, wasn't it? So it was probably a bad time to be left on your own. Um, yeah, it was. It was, yeah, it was, it was pretty tough. And that was the way I was running. It was just trying to get as much shelter as close to the barriers as possible and, um, and not minding running a little bit extra distance if it meant that. I can have a little bit of wind shelter. Yeah, no, it's, it, that does sort of tie into one of the questions I had around sort of your, your attentional focus during the marathon and what, you, what you're focusing on, what you're thinking about, and whether that changes through the race, but also how that fits with your overall experience of the marathon, because most people's experience of the marathon is it, that's all feeling pretty easy, doesn't it? And then it's gradually the screw gets turned on you and uh, it's certainly not easy once you get 20 miles plus and whether you sort of alter the the, the things you're thinking about and your attentional focus as you go through that because you mentioned it was quite easy being behind sort of Jake and then you could just focus on his pace so did you have to sort of intentionally change the way the things you were thinking about to try and deal with the, the experience of the pain and discomfort as it, as the race went on? Oh, definitely, yeah. The the first few miles felt, um, I wouldn't say I felt great, but I was just trying to embrace the experience and enjoy that I'm I'm racing at the towards the front of a big city marathon in my um, my home city essentially. So um, I was just trying to have a good time with that. And um, there was a point around kind of eight and nine where I kind of felt like I was fatiguing a little bit and I, I was a little bit tired and uh, kind of dawns on you how far you got to go, kind of thing. Um, and then I, I started to think about where I knew my friends and family were going to be. Um, and that was a big help. Um, I found that kind of miles ticked off um, just as I was kind of just thinking about seeing them rather than actually even looking out for them. Um, and suddenly, like, we'd caught up with the group in front. Um, and suddenly I found myself kind of towards the front of, of the group that I was in. And at that point, it was very much a case of, OK, might as well push on with Jake and, and see what happens. And, and the mentality then was, was more towards the race and competing and, and competing with the others. Um, and even though I wasn't feeling hugely amazing around 18, 19 mile, I, I saw that Wayne A was, it was the final Brit who was with me and I thought, well, now's the time to kind of, even though I'm not feeling great, if he's dropping off slightly, you can suddenly get really big gaps. If I have a pacemaker for two more miles and he's out on his own, um, and that that is what happened. And yeah, the the mentality once once Jake pulled off was okay. You've got a gap. Like this is going to be a good one. Let's just see how good we can make it. And um, I was really tired, and, and the headwind was really tough. Um, and at that point, I, I did start to get a bit of hamstring cramp and. Um, the thinking then was, okay, I think maybe it popped into my head once you've overdone this and you're not going to finish. Um, and then that quickly kind of went out of my mind and it was just a case of, you've done this in training before. I did this at the Cheshire Marathon when I was pacing where you're running at a good pace. You don't feel all that, but you take 10 seconds off a mile and suddenly you feel a lot better. Um, and I thought, well, I can afford to lose 10 seconds. Um, unfortunately it was 20 seconds a mile um, that I did lose around there maybe even 25 um, but maybe 10 of that you could put down to kind of just being in the headwind 
Um, and then the other 10, 15 was more the effort level that I had to take off. And um, the mentality then was actually, as everyone says, you have to dig as hard as you ever have ever dug in the last six miles of a marathon. It probably wasn't the case for me. It was more a case of you have to be smart here because if you do start digging that deep and you've still got three miles to go, you're not finishing this kind of thing. So it was actually a case of kind of damage limitation and, and kind of calculated, okay, it's four miles to go, three miles to go, and just keep running at this pace. And if someone comes past, someone comes past, that's what happens. And, and I kind of let myself look behind for once I got to 25 miles. Yeah, no, it's interesting you say that because, um, yeah, there's only one of those big efforts where you really dig in in a marathon that you can afford to do, and it, it has to be something that's sustainable, I think, doesn't it? You don't kind of recover from that, and you, for me, you're always sort of you're judging how your body is on that day and how long that sustained effort can be and how hard it can be uh, and when it can come in. But it's certainly, um, yeah, it's not at 20, 21 miles, is it? It's, it's I think there's a skill in that, in marathon running, in that you have to sort of gauge how much more you've got left and how you can sort of meter that out. Um, it's not gung-ho and, uh, and give it everything, is it, um, until really that you're very close to the finish. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's managed. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you, you mentioned there in terms of, the, you mentioned the um, that thought coming into your mind, because people often, they, they sort of not, be, not going to finish, and we often hear people talk about self-talk and you can have sort of that um, intentional self-talk that you develop yourself and like mantras and so on and things that you choose that you're going to focus on. But obviously we get those automatic thoughts, which are often the more sort of negative ones, aren't they, um, that come into our mind at different points in the race. And it doesn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily the end of the race, is it? But it's it's generally associated with some feelings of fatigue. Um, uh, did, was there anything that you did to try and manage that when it happened, or do you just allow it to sort of pass? And, and I think well on it. I just tried to think about kind of the miles that I had to tick off and, and just the distances. And um, sometimes I think about kind of times when you've been injured, and I think about how much you wish to run, and uh, friends who are uh, unwell or friends who are injured who aren't able to run, and you just kind of think they'd love to be in this situation where. All you are thinking about is just this race that you're in. That's all you're thinking about. So, um, I yeah, I kind of just go back to that of as much as it hurt, you're still in a very fortunate position, whereas essentially this is all that matters to you right now, and, and that's all you have to do. So um, I kind of thought about that, and um, it definitely popped into my mind less than it has done in previous races, um, whereas other races kind of – you just get this random thought in your head of, oh, why don't you stop? And generally it is when you're pretty tired, but sometimes it's not at like the worst part. It's just a random moment that pops in. I'll stop. And um, fortunately that didn't happen uh, more than once, really. No, exactly. Uh, that, that strategy you describe is one that I use myself as well. I think that can be very helpful to have those sort of strategies in place for when those thoughts come in that, you know, realising how fortunate you are to be in that position and, and compared to you know, other people that are not that lucky um, I think can be a very useful strategy because you're sort of embracing and being thankful of the situation you're in rather than sort of being regretful of, 
and, and focusing on the, the, the sort of negative aspects. Um, yeah. I've got one or two questions, but I'm, I'm aware that Mark hasn't asked any questions yet, so I'm going to bring Mark in at this point and, uh, and see what his thoughts are so far. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks for that. I thought you were blanking me, to be honest. <laughs> Sorry. Thing is, Phil, I'm not going to let them back in now. I'm just going to talk to you for 40 minutes. <laughs> just to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got a couple of questions. I'm trying to ask the questions at the right time. So I've got, I want to always go backwards and talk about your, your background and training and so on. But I also want to ask questions about the race. But just going back to what you said earlier. So you came from like 3,000 metres, would you say, was your speciality? Yeah, 3K and, and maybe 10K. Um, my 10K in, in 2019 was probably my strongest result to now, I'd, I'd say. So racing on your racing on the track at 3K, so you made that transition from what is in effect middle distance runner to marathon runner. And I'm just yeah. curious, like, what, you know, how, how easy that transition was? Because for a lot of people, it's not that easy, is it? There's world class middle distance runners who try to transition, who, who, you know, who don't manage to do it as successfully as they'd like to. What that transition was like and, you know, how did your training vary? So when you were doing the training for 3,000 metres on the track, for example, when you were specialising in that, what kind of training, the volume, harder sessions compared to how the shift has been now for the marathon? I think for me, when I was training on the track and, and really focusing on that, um, there was a lot more emphasis on, on the track sessions. Track sessions would be shorter reps and they'd be faster. They'd be a lot harder. Recoveries would generally be standing and um, maybe a little bit longer. Um, my overall training volume was lower, but not significantly lower. I was still running 100 miles a week, most weeks um, when training. Um, I mean, ar- arguably, I would say I probably wasn't training optimally for middle distance. Um, it was just I was enjoying racing middle distance more. Um, so I, I was doing 1500 for quite a few years when I probably should have been focusing on the 5k. But at the time I was enjoying the 1500 and, and I was fully aware that that was why I was doing it. And, um, and I probably would have more success at other distances, but, um, I always find and the advice I always give to people with running is you got to find the bit of it that you enjoy. Um, and that's what's going to help you be consistent. And that's what's actually going to give you the long term improvement and development. Um, so not to kind of think about the short term too much um, and, and just think about what's fun and, and be intrinsically motivated rather than the intrinsic success. Um, that's, that shouldn't be really the main motivator. Um, so the training, I, I did feel like I was kind of ready to step up and, and it basically just meant swapping out a few of the training shorter track reps for harder long runs and 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 emphasizing more on those um i pushed the overall volume a bit um but my overall volume was already pretty high and um and i was also already doing like fairly hard long runs on a weekend um so it wasn't a too much of a drastic change for me yeah and it's interesting as well because and we we've talked about so many times about this balance of intensity and volume and where the trends are as well at the moment in endurance sports and you know, not just running, but in cycling, you know, that kind of high intensity interval training stuff or is it, you know, lower base miles and people referring to lower base miles as jump mileage, you know. And so I think it's interesting and people will be very interested to hear that even when you were 
racing those 3000s and classing yourself as a middle distance runner, you were in fact still running 100 miles a week. So you still had that volume there. And whilst you pushed it up to 120, 130 plus, that, you know, you weren't running 20 miles a week to race those 3000 meter track races. Sorry. Yeah, there definitely was that. And, and I did feel maybe I was doing it more than others. And that's definitely the higher end of the spectrum. Um, but for me, that was what, what I enjoyed. I was able to go out with my friends. Um, I've got my dog. So if you don't run her, she's going to rip up a sofa cushion. So you might as well head out and run her kind of thing. And, and, and that was what I enjoyed doing. And, um, yeah. that's what I think was able to lead me to like con- continued improvement. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk, cause, uh, you just talking a second ago about being intrinsically motivated. So being more process orientated and that's the kind of advice that you give to people, you know, because if you can enjoy running and go out and enjoy running and running with your mates, running with your dog, whatever. Um, although I, we, and obviously people listening can't, can't see this, but we are on video here. I, I did think you said earlier in, in the conversation that you're running with a dog and then I was really shocked to see the cat walk across the camera. Yes, yeah. A little bit that the dog and the cat scenario, how do they get on? For <laughs> they're all right, they're not too bad. Yeah, yeah. So, um, no, you were saying about being process orientated and enjoying running and stuff like that, and, and that is key. So, with that switch to marathon running, then, um, which one do you think you enjoy the most? The shorter, faster stuff, or you know, have you changed what you enjoy, or are you are you finding that you enjoy the marathon training more than you did when you were training for the shorter stuff? I've I've loved the marathon training; it's been great. So um, definitely the marathon training. Um, I think through the summer, and a lot of my training partners are highly motivated and enjoying running high volume as well. So I've always got someone to run with. Um, always got people to train with and people are really helpful with my sessions and jump on a bike and help me with fluids and, and whatnot. So I've definitely enjoy it. And I think I do remember years ago kind of spending winters looking forward to ripping some 300s on the track kind of thing in the summer. Um, and now I'm the complete opposite. Like I turn up for those sessions thinking, oh God, this is going to be uh, really, really difficult and I'm going to get my ass handed to me by all the freshers. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah it's, it's definitely that's where the enjoyment is at the moment and yeah um, that's definitely transitioned yeah because when you, I think I just listened to what you were saying earlier and just the wording of it the kind of go out on the canal or run on the trails and a run with the dog and it just the way you're explaining it it sounds like you just you know you go out and enjoy it what you didn't say is well I run you know I've got a power meter or a heart rate monitor and you know there wasn't so much scientific jargon there it sounded like you just you enjoy getting out and doing that mileage just running with your mates and all that kind of stuff but it brings me to that question because obviously you've got a medical background as well how much does science influence your training and how much is it very much you know we hear these stories about the Kenyans where it's just dead basic just go out and run and you know there's there's no data no analysis how much does science influence your training or how much would you say you're influenced by, you know, that intrinsic actually get out and run on the trails and get the mileage and the social aspect and all that kind of stuff? How do they go together? Uh, it's got to be, it's probably 99% kind of the intrinsic, just get out and run and, and enjoy myself. And um, I do, I plan my training and I'm fairly meticulous with that. Um, but that's not really with like a scientific or a physiological um, head on. It's it's more just looking at, OK, I've got to run 26 miles at five minute mile in. 
So essentially, I need to get as close to that in training as possible and not overdo it and um, make sure that my easy stuff's easy because that's just good aerobic development and um, do as much of that as possible. Um, I'd say, yeah, just try and make the numbers trend upwards in terms of paces and distances rather than kind of heart rates or or power or, or any other metrics like that. Um, yeah. I, I have been looking at heart rate a little bit, um, just in terms of my easy running. Um, and I find that that's, I quite enjoy it. And it may be something that I kind of broach more into, um, in this next training block or, um, in the future. Um, but hopefully not to the point where it's influencing training more just as a marker of, of looking at what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I've just got one final question, and I'm being very training specific here. I'm going to save the questions, the race stuff, for a little bit later. But just one question then about, so you've gone from that middle distance background where your training, were, or certainly a percentage of your training would be sharper, faster. It's all about speed. And then we're going to a marathon, which is obviously more of an endurance-based event where maybe those shorter repetitions. How much do you think that short speed, do you feel you've lost it? Or are you losing that short speed? And also, how much do you think that short speed perhaps influences the marathon performances as well? Because we hear people saying, well, you're running a marathon now, so hey, you need to go and do mileage and that's it. So how those two things work, is the speed important for the marathon or do you feel it is? And do you feel that you're losing speed now you've shifted? I think you definitely need speed. Um, um, but it's more speed endurance, probably. So... Knowing that I could still run a 345, 1500 is, is definitely going to make things easier when I'm trying to run five minute miles. Um, I think rather than if I, I was, my limit was 355 at the moment, I definitely feel like, um, there's more power, more efficiency in my strides. Um, and that's only going to help when, when I'm running at, um, five minute pace or, or whatever pace that is. Um, I do feel like I probably lost my speeds during this marathon training block. Um, I think that was inevitable. Um, and I've definitely noticed kind of even over the last few years when I get on the track because of the high volume training I do, I may be fitter, but definitely the short, faster reps are harder than they used to be. Um, so if I can run under 40 seconds for 300 at the moment, then, then I'm pretty pleased. Um, whereas, I helped pace Alex Bell in one of her sessions prior to the British Champs, and she pretty much did me a lot. And I think I just held on, but she did start behind me. So um, that's the level of, of kind of where my speed is at at the moment. Um, and she is an Olympic finalist over 800. Um, but uh, as someone who has run a 340-1500, I should be able to put her away over a 300. Um during the build-up, I did focus on kind of including strides um, and including sprints into my training once a week and definitely focusing on that. Um, but even so, I, I still feel like there's probably going to be a little bit of loss there. Yeah. Um, that That's just uh, something that you have to give up, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Great. Right. I've got a few more questions, but I'm going to save those for later. I'm going to come back to Mike. Yeah, sure. cool. I think this one still fits in around the sort of preparation and general sort of lifestyle stuff and um you, we often advocate on the podcasts about the value of a support network and that structure of people around you and you alluded earlier about the people coming along within sessions feeding and cycling 
We'd love to know a bit more about that general personal support network you have. You're also part of the Leeds Talent Hub. So yeah. um, that's an innovative and relatively new sort of invention. It'd be great to find out a little bit more about that, what they offer, how, how much contact you have with that and, and how it benefits you. Uh, um, so I do see that mainly as part of kind of my support team and um, my coach is one of the coaches, Andrew Henderson on the Talent Hub. Um, so I've got coaching through there um, that helps. Um, the strength and conditioning support. Um, I've been working with Maya Scott, um, who's one of the interns at Leeds Beckett as my strength and conditioning coach this last year. Um, and he's been instrumental in kind of an extra person who kind of keeps me accountable. He's, he's there setting my training and it's, it's a progressive structured training program. Um, that's, I felt was really pushed me on and, and really highlights kind of any, um, any injuries or any niggles. He will alter everything to, to make sure that we're, we're keeping on top of those. And, um, that's been really key. Um, and it's also just having someone else who's, who's kind of looking out for you and, and giving you a message, making sure that training has been going well and, and wanting feedback and communication. Um, I've also been using the nutritionist, Carl Sloss through the Leeds Hunt Hub. Um, and that's been really beneficial to kind of really we've met maybe four times, five times through this marathon build up. Just to discuss kind of what fluids, what drinks I've been getting on with and, and what's been working best. Um, and coming up with a race nutrition plan. Um, there's also been the physiotherapy support through there. Um, so essentially we can ring up a physiotherapy practice and book in whenever we like, um, which is massively beneficial and um, especially during the final weeks, so I was in there once a week, um, just to iron out any niggles and keep things supple and, and keep things moving in the right way. Um, I say outside of that, obviously friends, family, um, are key, um, definitely training partners and club mates that you kind of just bounce ideas off twice a day when you're running with them and, and what they think about training and, um, the ones who Ollie Lockley and, and others who've got experience with the marathon is really beneficial. Um, and then also the guys who look after my management um, at Forte, um, Luke Allen there is really key and, and really approaches that with a holistic approach. Um, so I've definitely been kind of utilising them to kind of help bounce ideas off and, and really lean on them for support um, throughout. Give us two seconds. I've just got to let the dog in because she's just barking and scratching. <laughs> Come here. You going downstairs. <laughs> he wants to be on the podcast. Right. <laughs> this bit's staying in. Yeah. Well, it, it, it wouldn't have been right to not have a visit from the famous Kipchoge. <laughs> I, I remember reading that initially, and if when you surface read something sometimes, we just say in fairly, wouldn't have been right to not have the, the famous Kipjogi make a visit. No, no, definitely not. So, um, and Hailey was trying to get in as well. So she's, they're both downstairs now. So <laughs> brilliant dog names, brilliant dog names. To zero in a bit on what you were saying about the strength conditioning, is that a new aspect to your training in the last period of time, or is it something that's always been around? It's definitely something that I've always done or attempted to do, um, but it wasn't as structured um, as it was. And um, I'd kind of just go in the gym and lift what I felt like lifting. And 
tried to lift more than I lift the week before, essentially. Um, so it definitely wasn't as um, uh, as designed and, and, and really progressive as it, as it has been. Um, I definitely enjoy it more than I used to, um, having that support. Um, and I don't miss my strength and conditioning sessions anymore, whereas they were easily the first session of the week to bin off, basically. Yeah, and that's that's something we've chatted about, and I chat all the time with, with athletes and patients. It's that conflict rather than um, complementing the, the running that everyone seems to struggle with, and and sometimes outsourcing to that professional who can just give you that structure because the beauty, I suppose, with, with Leeds is that it's done in collaboration with the run-in to balance and, and promote each other rather than yep. conflict. Um, how does that stuff now look in as you move into this recovery phase? Is that all taken a, a back seat for a little bit or, or switched into a transition mode? Yeah, definitely. So, <laughs> two weeks off conditioning work and we'll get back in the gym next week and, and start building things up slowly with that and um gonna aim for a 10k around christmas time um on the road so um we've got that keyed in and, and we'll start pro- progressing on that um side of things um but it's definitely a case of just take things easy and, and coach um is very much of the of the thing of run what you like for a few weeks if you want to do a session do a session if you don't don't and go out I'm gonna have to run because the dog needs exercising so um it's yeah I I just do what I feel like doing and um and just see how I go day to day really Mm -hmm. again it's that it's that as Mark alluded to with with the training it's that very much intrinsic feedback and just allowing yourself to be comfortable with with having a bit of a a downtime we see so many so many of the athletes that, that Mark coaches and I work with it's this frustration and anxiety the second a race is done that everything's being lost or they're just being sedentary and they need to get straight back into it and you're not going to hit those peaks further down the line if if you try to burn that candle consistently sure yeah Um, but i would always suggest an active break or i've always found that that's what's best for me um so even if you're going to do some hiking or what just getting out a couple times a week in your two, three week break, however long you want, um, just for a 20 minute jog, um, just really easy. I think it really helps keep kind of like, especially when I have plantar fascia issues and Achilles issues, it just helps keep things moving and it helps keep things soft so that when you do start again, you can get your volume back up pretty much in the first week um, as long as your intensity is low. Um, and you, you're not really um, having any problems because um, otherwise you just find people kind of get into October and they start picking up niggles the second that their volume and intensity goes back up in the same week. During your training plan, would you systematically program complete rest days? Um, I had one in the entire marathon build up. Um, and I didn't like it, so I I probably won't, to be honest. Um, I definitely have easier days and maybe a day where you just run three miles or something like that. But um, I don't do well with complete rest days and um, they're definitely more forced on me than, um, than something that I would I would choose to put in. Yeah. 
Mark, did you say you had race-specific questions? Yeah, and we actually just uh, have a quick chat about this as well. You're saying that you, you don't like rest days, and, and and that's not uncommon, is it? You know, there's a lot of uh, people who are doing relatively high volume just don't have rest days at all, and certainly triathlon because they're split it between three sports. They can manage that even easier. You know, they can just have swim days or whatever. But is it a psychological thing or a physical thing? Do you feel physically awful, or do you psychologically not get on with it, or is it? a bit of both and you can't separate them <laughs> yeah it's both definitely um i think so i had my foot my only rest day of the entire build up was a week before london marathon um and i had done a long drive and and been at a family do where you're kind of eating things that you shouldn't be eating and and not really so definitely from a psychological point of view that plays on your mind and you feel like you're fatiguing and you feel like you're flat um and then the legs obviously after a long drive and after resting do just feel a little bit flat and they don't feel like they're moving as well as they were so um definitely in future I'd, I'd probably um even if I get out for two miles I feel like that's that's just moving things and, and I enjoy it so I'll probably do that in the future yeah yeah and as you alluded to earlier on it's like you know a lot of this is I think when people write training programs they're so physiology based aren't they it's all speeds or heart rates or sort of, and, and data. It's very physiology based when people construct training plans, but actually psychology is probably more important than anything else because ultimately if you don't even want to do that plan, if you're not motivated to do that plan, then, uh, then it's pointless you can write this plan as detailed as possible, but if you don't want to do it, then the whole thing falls apart. I think I say with the, um, it's, and we see this a lot with people peaking for big events. So they'll do a huge event and then they'll completely go to graze and feel awful for, two to three weeks and you know in a world where we're talking about mental health and how good routine is I think that's part of it really isn't it that you're used to a routine and you're used to running with your mates or you run with a dog and when that's removed can psychologically cause quite a big slump for a lot of people and I think that's something maybe for everybody else who's ran London Marathon for all the uh, all the recreation runners to be careful of is those those weeks that follow it so yeah have an active recovery break like you say which may be the best advice really yeah, exactly. Definitely. Definitely. So yeah. um, just to make sure you it doesn't matter what you do, but just just get out and move a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a couple of questions about the race. Ian's back. <laughs> the, uh, a couple of questions about the race. So I, I what was interesting watching it on TV was the dynamic with you and Jake Smith as well. I mean, he, he looked like he was having a great time. But to be fair, yeah. he, he didn't have to get to the finish line. <laughs> so, so he was having a ball waving at the cameras and God knows what. Is it is this correct? I heard that he had the um, the pace time shaved into the back of his head. He did, yeah, yeah, he did. He done that <laughs> and he freshened it up and then and drew it in as well. It's quite funny. Brilliant, brilliant. So yeah, so they looked like there was just a really good relationship with you two, just and seeing you run together. And I think because obviously you, you became separated as well, so it was just you two together, and he was pretty much pacing you. And um, did you know? Uh, well, I'm going to ask first of all whether that's true. You know that did you? How useful you found that? whether you felt that kind of relationship on the day as well. Uh, did you know where he was going to pull off as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I knew I knew he was going 20 miles. Yeah. Um, or that, that's what he told me. And um, I'm, I'm mates with Jake, and he came up to Leeds and trained with us for a month in August. And um, I chat to him quite regularly, and, and he's very supportive, and I'm always supportive of, of what he's doing. And obviously he's an uber talent, and, and he's really exciting to watch. So... Um, I knew he was going to do a great job at the pacing um, and that was a big 
stress relief. I, I just, there was all this thinking before in the hotel of, do I go with the Mark Scott uh, pace group that's going at kind of 65 flat or do I go at the 65 30 group with Jake? And, um, and at the end of the day, it was a very easy decision. It was just like, I know Jake, I trust Jake and, It'll be, I know he's going to do a brilliant job. So I just thought, go with him and, and, and lean on him and, and let him take the brunt of it. And, um, and he did a great job. Yeah. Well, you're not tempted just to shout to him. Can you just do another mile, mate? <laughs> <laughs> there was a little part of me that thought I could just start offering him money here. <laughs> like, <laughs> just see him did just say, like, I'm going to get some prize money out of this. So how about 10% cut for every mile you do or something? <laughs> um, but no, he's, I think he's, uh, he was very smart uh, um, to put off at 20, and, and I guess if, if he goes to 24 or so, you just start worrying, is he going to finish? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Uh, uh, Ian, uh, coming back to you, because I know you had some other questions, didn't you? Yeah, uh, thanks, Mike. I'm quite interested around sort of your use of uh, uh, how you set goals for, you, for your running and sort of goal setting, not just sort of obviously within a race itself, you might set you know, a, a time goal, um, and process goals within that. But what about um, when you're sort of planning out a season? Do you do you set specific objectives, and is that your start point and planning for the season? Because I'm just thinking, like, I think one of your interviews you mentioned Paris 2024, possibly the marathon there. That's obviously quite a long-term objective. But in the next year, there's sort of the the Worlds, the Euros, and uh, the European Championships, and um, uh, and also the Commonwealth Games uh, here in Birmingham. And you've got to qualify for two of those now, haven't you? But are you now planning sort of a year around trying to get the Worlds qualifying or do you just focus on um, one of those other competitions that you do have the qualifier for? So we're not sure entirely yet. Um, I, I actually, I've got a top 10 in a platinum label marathon, um, which does count as an entry standard for the Worlds. Um, so British Athletics won't take that as a automatic selection, but whether they would take that as... Um, a selection if, if three other guys don't get the standard then um, I'll have to wait and see about that um, but for me it's, it's definitely a case of targeting one of those championships um, and competing well at that championship so I don't want to go and target another marathon knacking myself um, and then suddenly turn up at a championship next summer really pleased to have made it but it's my third marathon in 10 months and, and I'm just there to make up numbers um, the goal is definitely to actually reach high levels and um ticking off getting a vest doesn't actually improve your performance level um the goal is to go there and and, and actually compete and, and do well um at one of the championships um so the, the year will basically base around there and something that we haven't really done a lot with before is altitude um so at the moment the the thought is okay let's do some races this winter and do some races in the spring um, use altitude um, to see how they go and, and basically using that as a learning experience as to how um, I am affected by altitude and, and any benefit and, and when I perform best and when I come back from an altitude camp and um, and then go forward with that into a championship and then hopefully into marathons in the future. Yeah, no, that's great. I guess that, that that focus on the performance sort of resonates with what you were saying earlier, sort of that intrinsic motivation, the focus on the, the actual 
performance uh, and your enjoyment of it as well, rather than it being the best, that's the objective, it's the performance in the uh, competition itself. So you're not planning on another marathon before that to try and get a Wales qualifier, but if the seventh place at London gets you a place, then obviously that becomes a consideration. They're not that far apart, are they, the three? I know the Commonwealth and the European Championships are very close. Uh, Yeah, they're all within about a month, so there won't be any doubling, I don't think. It's it's one of of the three, isn't it? I guess that makes it simple in terms of planning your year, doesn't it? Because you know roughly where the marathon's going to be in a few weeks. Yeah. So so I guess that gives a little bit of insight into sort of your planning, that sort of macro level in terms of the the season and what you're thinking now in terms of how you build up to, to that marathon. What about on sort of more on a, a weekly basis um, in terms of setting targets for, for for the week? Is that something that you do in terms of you mentioned times in sessions? You're you're setting specific pace goals in sessions. That's an important part of your training. Yeah. Um, so the training at the moment is very non-specific. Um, so probably will stay this way until. November, I think. Um, and then once I come into November, it will be a case of, okay, I'm trying to run sub 28 for 10k, um, at the end of, at the end of the year or early January. Um, so we need to be kind of getting as fit as possible and, and also on the track working around that pace or quicker, um, to try and get there. So 67 per lap and, and, and nice long reps working at that pace. So not going to be easy, but, um, definitely something I think I can do. And um, you've mentioned your coach a couple of times in terms of you putting together, obviously informing your training, but how does that work in terms of that coach-athlete relationship in terms of developing your um, your program and your plan? Is that something that you work together on or is it something? Is it more that he gives it to you and then you, and you look at it uh, uh, built on that? Work, yeah, we work together on it um, and, and that's been working well for the last few years and um, it's very much a case of this is what's worked in the past. This is what I like. Um, this is what Emil Perez is doing. This is what other training partners are doing. Um, let's fit this in and then also to work that in. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's a constant kind of dialogue. So probably not talking as much at the moment because I'm not running as much, but most weeks it, it could be kind of dialogue or communication every day, really, and, and changing things or how did you feel? Why do you change that? And, um, yeah, it's definitely a very open, open um, communication uh, between the two of us. Yeah, and how long has that coach-athlete relationship been? It sounds like you've got a really strong working relationship. Is that quite a long term? Yeah, it's been about eight, eight years now. Um, so, okay. yeah, quite a while. And, and, and both have kind of progressed in, in my ability and he's also progressed in his coaching ability through, throughout that time as well. Yeah, that's uh, it's good when you get that long term relationship and you sort of build specifically how it works best for the two of you, can't you? Um, and, and develop alongside one another, as you say. Um, so yeah, that was it for for the main questions from me. I don't know if the other guys have got any other questions they wanted to ask. Any from you, Mike? No, I got all mine done. I ticked them all off. I ticked them all off. I think we've pretty much hit the time box there perfectly as well, haven't we? Good. <laughs> Well, uh, we'll finish there then by saying just well, for, thanks very much for coming on, Phil. It's, uh, it's brilliant to have you on. See, we, we are, and I'm going to say, you're still our 
highest level superstar I think we've had on the podcast. I'm going to put you on that pedestal. That's our benchmark, which we're going to have to now try and hit for future weeks. Uh, and I think we're all in agreement that we, you know, we, we, we'll eagerly watch what the future holds and your future marathon performances. And absolutely, we all we wish you the best for the future. And, you know, will you come back on when you win London? Yeah, yeah, God, yeah, if I win London, I'll, I'll, first one I'll do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, um, you know, when you get to that point, there'll be, there'll be someone who'll have a dog called Seasman. You know that, don't you? <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks again. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been it's been great to talk to you and uh wish you all the best for the future. Great, appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Cheers, Carl. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD SportX. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the Endurance Coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com, where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon. <laughs>